Our second scripture reading this morning is Acts 2, verses 14 through 21, picking up where Maureen left off. You may follow along on page 90 of the New Testament section of the Pew Bibles. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, fill this sanctuary in each one of us that we might understand your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy birthday to the church. We call Pentecost the birthday of the church because it was at Pentecost, the 50th day after Passover, that the the disciples got up and got out to do what Jesus did, teach, heal, Spread the good news of God's love. Today, on our 2,000th plus birthday, some might wonder whether we're beginning to look our age. Maybe we didn't wear enough sunscreen. Maybe we've spent too much time being couch potatoes because, in case you hadn't heard, sitting is the new smoking. Last month, just in time to hit the newsstands for Easter, Newsweek's cover story was... Forget the church, follow Jesus. The cover shows a hipster Jesus, an urban Jesus, and the story inside has the tagline, Christianity in Crisis. Christianity has been destroyed by politics, priests, and get-rich evangelists. Ignore them, writes Andrew Sullivan, and embrace him, capital H. Mr. Sullivan writes that the Christian Church in the United States is in big trouble. It has lost much of its authority, and it's too closely associated with the agendas of people who use Jesus to advance their own power. As a result, according to a 2007 study, a whole generation of young people believe Christians are homophobic, judgmental, hypocritical, too involved in conservative politics, insensitive to those who are different, not accepting of people of other faiths, and old-fashioned. They say that organized religion in its present form simply doesn't make sense to them. So should we forget the church, as Mr. Sullivan proposes? Not so fast. Perhaps Mr. Sullivan has forgotten this story in Acts, a story the church needs to remember. This odd story in which something 
utterly wondrous and completely unpredictable happens. God happens. The symbols tell the story, wind and fire and spirit. Suddenly the whole place was smoking and the disciples begin to look like so many oversized trick birthday candles crowned with tongues of fire that even the mighty wind could not blow out. We're not told what they said. We are told, however, of the greatest of all miracles. The disciples went from being stunned and confused and immobilized to being so on fire with the Spirit that they not only begin to do what Jesus showed them how to do, they do it in ways that people from other cultures and who speak other languages can understand. Maybe Mr. Sullivan forgot that Pentecost, as Walter Brueggemann wrote, is not just a remembered event, but an ongoing process by which the Spirit of God regularly rattles, bewilders, and turns the world upside down. Mr. Sullivan is right on with some of his assessments about American churches. But the fact that things aren't easy doesn't mean the end of the church, and it isn't even a bad sign. That's the spirit on the loose. Canadian pastor David Ewart warns that the Holy Spirit does not come to solve our problems, but to create them. Think about it. Without Pentecost, the disciples would have returned to their previous careers as fishermen. Can't you almost hear James and John explaining, sure, it was a wild and crazy three-year ride, and that Jesus sure was a heck of a guy, but maybe we just needed to get it out of our system before we could settle down into Dad's business. Once the Spirit comes, however, that return to normalcy is no longer an option. What's more, writes Ewart, the Holy Spirit doesn't prevent failure, but invites it. Or to put it slightly differently, the Holy Spirit invites us to view setbacks and failures, not as ultimate failure. The problems that this world and the church face are too great, too complex, and too significant to imagine that we will hit on the best solution the first time out, or maybe ever. Did the disciples, freshly inspired, solve all the world's problems? No. In fact, right out of the starting box, people assume their fervor is the product of bottled spirits, not the Holy Spirit. Peter had to defend the disciples with his sermon. This invitation to the church to try in the face of failure means that once we've identified a worthy challenge, we have to experiment and count on failing. We have to innovate and count on failing, invent and count on failing again. A middle school English teacher said, I tell my kids to make a mistake every day, just not the same mistake. Each mistake, each setback, each false start, each failure is not to be lamented, but learned from. It is very, very hard to believe this in our success-obsessed culture, but the question really isn't whether we're successful. It's whether we're faithful. This perspective gives us the freedom to place ourselves on the side of those who are most vulnerable, even so-called lost causes 
and to take great risks and dare great adventures. Why? Because we trust that resurrection only and always follows crucifixion. And that whatever the efforts, the results of our efforts, both our hopes and our future are secured not by our abilities, but by God's good promise. You see, with the Holy Spirit at work, it isn't all about us. I was reminded about this a couple of weeks ago at a memorial service for Al, a man in his 40s, a friend of mine from before seminary. Al and his wife had been part of a church years ago, but left disenchanted when that church split over a controversial pastor. So I was glad to officiate, more or less, at the service held under one of those big white event tents on the parking lot at the Romberg-Tiburon Center, that's San Francisco State's Oceanic Research Center, where Al had worked as a marine biologist. I wasn't sure what to expect. There I was, under a tent in the parking lot, in my pastor's robe and my San Anselmo cross. My words and my prayers were unapologetically Christian. I affirmed our faith that nothing in life or in death can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, although I avoided some of the traditional language that makes sense if you've heard it a million times, but makes no sense at all otherwise. It wasn't church in any way we traditionally think of it, but it was community, a community that Al and his family helped create, a community of caring people who loved Al because, among other things, one of the rules that Al lived by was keep it real. Parsed, that meant maintain your integrity, don't lose track of what's really important, and don't get too big for your britches. For Al, part of keeping it real was that he refused to put on the rat race jersey, as his best friend put it, Al's 13-year-old son sang a song backed up by his dad's best friend and his son on guitar. The song was Good Life, a song made popular by the band One Republic. And Al and his family had sung it to each other while Al was under hospice care, dying from a brain tumor. The congregation, or audience, or whatever we were, clapped along as this kid, whose father had just died, sang a lively rock song about how life is good, even when it is short, even when things don't work out. The song echoed what Al's friends said about him, that he was not afraid. And his son was the best evidence that Al had taught this freedom and fearlessness to his children. It was a moment of heartbreaking beauty that I will never forget. I left that event with more questions than answers, but I was reminded that we clergy, we Christians, don't bring the Holy Spirit with us. The Holy Spirit was there not because I was there in my robe and my cross with my churchy words. The Spirit was already there, doing the work of transforming hearts and minds through the outpouring of love and through the example of Al and his friends and family. As one writer has put it, God's spirit is unrestricted. God determines the time, the place, the channel, and the program content. That is a great source of comfort, a source of relief for me. It isn't all up to us. 
And as I listen to good people that I'm pretty sure haven't stepped into a church in years, if ever, I had to agree with Mr. Sullivan that the work of the Spirit is not to maintain particular institutions or buildings, but to transform hearts and minds so that the love of Christ is known and lived and spread. But it also occurred to me that a community drawn together around a single event or person for one afternoon can't sustain a life of faith or the ongoing work of Christ. It can't sustain a life of striving to be faithful to what we know about Christ and to what we learn together about Christ over a lifetime of prayer and study and community and service, especially when the Holy Spirit doesn't solve our problems but creates them, and especially when the work we are called to do is work that we know will fail, at least by society's measure of success. There is a wonderful old story about a member of a church who used to attend services regularly but stopped. After a few weeks, the minister decided to visit him. It was a chilly evening, and the pastor found the man at home sitting by a blazing fire. Guessing the reason for the pastor's visit, the man welcomed him, led him to a comfortable chair near the fireplace, and waited for the pastor to speak. The pastor made himself at home, but said nothing. In the silence, he contemplated the dance of the flames around the burning logs, and after a few minutes, he took the fire tongs, carefully picked up a brightly burning ember, and placed it to one side of the hearth all alone. Then he sat back in his chair, still silent, the host watching all this. As the one lone ember's flame flickered and diminished, there was a momentary glow, and then it was cold and dead. Not a word had been spoken since the initial greeting. The pastor glanced at his watch, got up to leave. He picked up the cold, dead ember and placed it back into the middle of the fire. Immediately, it began to glow once more with the light and warmth of the burning coals around it. As the pastor reached the door to leave, his host said with a tear running down his cheek, Thank you for your fiery sermon. I'll be back in church next Sunday. I'm not telling you this story to get you to show up for church every Sunday. Okay, maybe I am a little bit. But the real point is, the main point is, as John Wesley put it, there is no such thing as a solitary Christian. That's where the Newsweek cover story, Forget the Church, is dead wrong. Following Jesus means being part of a community. This Pentecost installation that Virginia Tebow designed for our sanctuary is called Gathered and Scattered. The Holy Spirit started a movement on Pentecost, and to sustain that movement, the community gathers and scatters, gathers and scatters, gathers by the power of the Spirit to learn and pray and be fed and inspired, and scatters by the power of the Spirit to do Christ's work, understanding we also will meet the Spirit when we get out there. We are in the middle of an ongoing Pentecost. 
As Greg Love once said to me, the only place to avoid change and growth is in a coffin. Only God knows what the church will become, but it will change. And it probably won't look like the church we grew up with. And I'm not talking about worship style here. I'm talking about something much more fundamental. The change may take a couple of generations. Some of us may not see it. But we can hope for what we can't see, as Paul put it. And we can be open to the wind of the Spirit. We can be open to speaking and learning all the languages that God speaks, not just church language, but the language of our neighborhood, of young families who are too busy for Sunday mornings, of single parents and people out of work, of people marginalized by our culture and people who are skeptical about religion, people who hold weddings at wineries and memorial services under tents in parking lots. It's significant that the first act of God's Spirit at Pentecost was to honor the diversity and the individuality of the people who hear about Jesus, throwing open the doors to people the disciples couldn't even have imagined. So to rephrase, Mr. Sullivan, follow Jesus and join with the Holy Spirit in reinventing the church. It began with Pentecost. It did not stop 2,000 years ago. The Spirit of God promises to continue to stir and energize imagination and faith and hope. May God help us to remember that this promise is ours together. As a church, we face the future with its challenge and with its hope. Amen.